Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast, where we help founders and business owners grow their companies from zero to 10 million. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Are your decisions helping you reach the million dollar mark in revenue? Growth is never guaranteed, but you can have make strategic plans to improve your likelihood of achieving that coveted goal. Anchor Advisors' Brad Ferris is keenly aware of those pitfalls, delaying or stopping business growth. He's been helping agencies break through for decades. On this episode of the podcast, we talk about those pitfalls, including what moves your startup or small business would need to ensure every action gets you closer to that milestone. We chat about getting to the million-dollar threshold. We also spend a good bit of time talking about how to break through. This was really an interesting and value-packed conversation. Brad's been doing this for a long time. And like I said, we had a great conversation with, I think, a lot of actionable tips and strategies that you could do tomorrow. He works almost exclusively with agencies, but his approach, his framework is consistent to helping anybody in the B2B space, whether a startup or a small business, you know, grow their business. So I start developing that millionaire mindset and tune into this episode. And at the end of the show, please make sure you visit our website where you can find the notes, plus the links we mentioned with Brad. If you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe so you're always the first to know when a new episode is released. Now, let's get the interview started. Hey, good morning, Brad. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. I've, I've been looking forward to this one. But before I dig in, you know, for the audience, why don't you share a little bit about your background and what you're working on today and we'll be off and running. Sure. My business is Anchor Advisors. We serve creative service firms who are growing through that million dollar barrier. So people who have built their business to a certain level. We find that businesses, B2B service businesses particularly, tend to stall out around 750, 800, 900,000, something like that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but we help them to grow them through that million dollars into the two, three million dollar range, helping them to get stuff off the owner's plate, build the management team, and really help them to focus their marketing and sales around their ideal customer. And those are things that really help them to launch through that barrier. Yeah. And congratulations to you. This is year 20 or is this year 21 now? This is year 20. Yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's been, on the one hand, it seems like yesterday. On the other hand, it seems like a hundred years. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think in the B2B world, kind of the phases we've gone through oh with kind gosh. of the start of digital to what yep. we're doing now with distributed. And maybe we can get into that in a second. But the first thing I want to touch on is you kind of hit on something near and dear to my heart, which is that million dollar threshold. Yeah. And people, listeners of the podcast will know I talk all the time about two numbers, but you know, only 10% of all businesses get to a million and then right. 1% get to, to 10 million, which right. I think is just a crime. <laughs> and what was interesting when I first heard this stat, 1%, I'm like, what is it? It seems kind of arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. And I started having founders come onto the show and the ones that had got beyond the 10 million and said, what was it? And it's really what I found is one, it's not necessarily a million dollars. It's when they run out of the network or their network to sell right. to. That's right. Or they're at capacity with the work, right? And it sounds like you kind of alluded that to it too. So and maybe you could just dig into that 750 to a, a million and what, you know, what are the challenges that they're running into there? What do you see? 
So when we first start our business, we just need business, right? We need, we need oxygen. If someone says, do you do that? You say, yes, right? We invent this range of services that is kind of all over the place. And if people keep buying it, we keep selling it. As that small startup business, what we're really doing is we're kind of casting spaghetti at the wall to see what's going to stick. And that works to keep the business going, but it makes it impossible to grow because you've got this wide range of services and you can't really get good at any one of them. And you can't build systems and processes for 12 different services. And so as long as you keep kind of throwing all that stuff out there, it means that you as the business owner, you're the only one that can keep all those balls in the air. It falls on the business owner's shoulders and at around eight, nine, 10 employees, seven, eight, hundred, nine hundred thousand, somewhere there, the business owner runs out of bandwidth. They just cannot keep spinning any more plates. A lot of things happen at that point. Some of them just keep doing that, keep spinning plates wherever they can. But the key to then getting through there is to start shrinking that range of services to really find the thing in new product development. They talk about product market fit. We talk about service market fit in B2B service businesses. So what's that thing that if you got a little bit better at, it would make it easier to sell because it's the thing that people want and that you could charge more money for so that you could afford to hire some help. And a lot of things come together when you can start to focus around that core service. Interesting. So it's definitely more on the services side and the repeatability and the scalability. Does that also go for industries as well? Because, you know, I work with yes. a number of companies that they've got like 12 industries, but yet they're under a half a million in revenue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so really, they just have no focus. Is what that exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the world that talk about specialization, probably more than I do. But the, the value of specialization is that you start to recognize patterns, right? And so you can see things that your clients can't see because you've done this 10, 15, 20 times. Right. And that builds in efficiencies for you, but it also creates trust in your prospects because they know that you know what you're talking about. And that greater knowledge, that pattern recognition makes it easier to acquire clients, but then it also makes it easier for you to standardize your offering so that you can have a higher margin service and have more impact. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. The other thing I found quite a bit and discovered in my last corporate role, which is now a number of years ago, was the importance of being able to speak your vertical or industry's language. Yes. Right? There's no quicker way to lose a sale than not just taking a cookie cutter, even though your service may work beautifully across 15 different verticals, unless you're speaking the language of those verticals. And it's, it's a much tougher sell, right? <laughs> well, it's, again, it's that trust thing, right? If, you know, a lot, most of my clients are agencies. They're, they're uh, creative firms of some kind or another. And they tend to call the people that they serve their clients. If I start talking to them about customers, right away, they know that I'm not in their world, right? We call them clients. It's, it, and it's a subtle thing that we both know they're the same. Right. But as soon as I say customer, they, they suspect that I don't know what I'm talking about, or at least I don't know what, what I'm talking about for them. Yeah, I think that's so true. I learned that lesson the hard way because we were calling into SMBs, right, selling, and the, the law firm looking for paid ads versus the roofer and even the plumber and the roofer are vastly different yes, languages. Totally. And if you don't speak it, they're not going to 
trust. I think trust was such a good word for that. So yeah, I had a client last year. He focused on just HVAC companies. I'm doing lead gen for HVAC companies. And he was looking for single location HVAC companies because he, he knew what was going on for that owner and he could talk to that person. And because he had done it a bunch of times, he was able to create a script that he could get someone else to do the selling for him because it was just, there are lots of these guys and they all had very much the same problems. And so he could get out of that linchpin role of being the only one that could deliver those sales. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And as they say, riches in the niches, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> makes sense. So, so I'm curious with the, those owners you've worked with that get to that threshold, right? So to go beyond one and then getting to 10, you really, it, and maybe that goes to what's changed in the industry. You can't scale to 10 million with just salespeople, right? You've got to be able to tell your story and connect with folks digitally, which is the same story. So I love your perspective on how you help those owners and agency folks to think about the messaging and how do we reach a broader audience and how do I connect with more people? So when you start to specialize around a particular industry, and have one core service that you're offering into that industry, then it becomes really clear what you need to say to attract people. It becomes clear what the problem is that they're having and what the outcome is they're looking for. And so like you said about speaking their language, because we've done this multiples of times, we know the things to say that are gonna draw people towards us and then the offer that's gonna close for them. And so once you start seeing that pattern, then paid media starts to make a lot of sense, right? Now, because I know what, who I'm looking for, I can target the ads. And because I know the message that's, that is converting, I know what message to put into those ads. And I can start to use paid media to draw people towards us. Now, there's still a mix. You still need some content, right? Because your paid media needs to bring people back to something that's still trust building. There's still room for some downloads and some videos and all of the tools that we use in a digital marketing toolbox. But around a million five, I start to see paid media starting to play a bigger role. Paid media and SEO really as a mix there of, of drawing in a lot more leads. And with that, as you're bringing in more leads, now you need to have better qualification, right? So some lead qualification on the site, perhaps a sales associate who's doing those qualifying calls for you. And you're just starting to streamline that whole business development process bit by bit as you grow. Yeah, no, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I see all the time is we're going to spend this money on paid advertising or maybe their organic's really good. You got leads coming through, but they've hired one part-time person that works on Tuesdays and Thursdays to work with the leads. I'm like, man, you got one chance with these folks mostly. So you've yeah. got to have that process. It doesn't have to be 12 steps deep, but re- back to your point on repeatable to make it scalable process. I'm guessing you see quite a bit with the lack of that type of a process at that stage, right? Well, one of the things that changes at that stage is because I know who I'm looking for, because I knew who my best clients are, you're going to start throwing a bunch of leads out of the boat. You put up that red velvet rope, you do much higher qualification. And the people that make it through that qualification, they want to buy from you even more, right? And so it makes the sales process easier because you're doing that qualification out front. And you're saying to people, if, if you make it through here, I know I can solve your problems. And that, that confidence combined with the hoops that you're getting people to jump through 
make the sales process kind of a lot easier. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that, right? That's I mean, right. That's <laughs> right. We do have a tendency in the business owners to make things more difficult on our customers than they need to be, right? Because, you know, one of the things I, I talk a lot about is think about it from the buyer's process, not your sales process. Yeah. Because coming 30 years in B2B, right, we, fo- we got sales ops, we got all these things, we got our sales. Customer doesn't give a shit about your sales ops <laughs> strategies, right? So try to get them to think differently about how they want to buy and, and yeah. take some of that friction out of the process. Yeah. And I'm going to mess this quote up, but I saw a quote a week ago that has really made an impact. I mean, it really illustrates this point. He said that as long as you see money as a scarce resource, you will do anything you can to get it. But if you start to see yourself as the scarce resource, money will do anything it can to get to you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so as we get to that million, that's where we're the scarce resource, right? We're the prize. We're the thing that people want. And so by putting some, some barriers out there in the sales process or in the lead process, then that makes you more attractive because you're saying, I'm only going to work with 10 clients this year, 20 clients this year. But the ones that I'm going to work with every year, the billings for those clients or your average client value needs to go up. That's how you grow your business, not by having more clients, but by having higher value clients. And so you're really focused in, you know exactly what the clients are that you're looking for. And that's what starts to really give you some scale. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. So maybe when you take a step back, right? So when client, your prospects reach out to you, you know, what are some of the two or three biggest challenges they're facing? I think we, we obviously they're not getting the revenue, but what are some of the things that other business owners or founders listening to this podcast, they say, holy crap, that's me. <laughs> I am the reason why we're not growing. So maybe share just a couple to two or three biggest blockers that you see these owners that have to deal with. So the conversation I have all the time, people call me up and they say, Brad, I'm totally overwhelmed. I can't work another hour of the week. And I say, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Why don't you hire some help? Well, I just don't have the money, right? Okay, well, why don't you raise your prices? Because then you'll get more money and then you can hire people to help you. Oh, if I raise my prices, I'd lose customers. Perhaps, but I bet you would attract new clients that would be even more profitable than the ones that you're losing, right? And so there's, one of the things that's interesting there is when we started out, we were fearless. We were willing to try anything, right? Yeah, because we had nothing to lose. <laughs> but once we get up to that million dollar level, now making changes start to feel really risky because what if I lose what I have? And the truth is that to get on the other side of a million, you do have to lose some things. You are going to let go of some clients that aren't great fit clients. You're going to let go of some services that aren't serving you. You're probably going to get let go of some people right? Some of those people that were your second or third or fourth employees, they're probably not the people that are going to take you to $10 million. And so, yes, there are some things here that you're going to have to let go of as you move forward. And that is where I think people start to get hung up. You know, they had the confidence to get themselves this far, but to get to the point where I'm not involved in every decision, that's a whole different level of confidence that, that I think people have a hard time seeing for themselves. Or, or yeah, or breaking, you're right, 100% breaking through that because they are yeah. involved in all aspects, but they've now run out of time. And I think that's one of the causes of these businesses to fail, if you will, is, you know, the burnout, right? You, you know, <laughs> how long are these owners going to do this where they're, they're not breaking through? And you touched on the people a little bit because one of the 
again, maybe just because with the background I come from, one of the default I hear founders say, well, now I'm just going to go hire a salesperson. I'm like, well, yes, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah. right? And it, it's not always as simple. And that's kind of the beauty and the curse of B2B is the nuance, right? There's no one size fits all. And it just you go hire a salesperson, all your problems are solved. It doesn't necessarily work that way. So so when you're working with these, these owners, kind of what is that approach with the people side? Are you starting to look at specialization now? Or I mean, it's, I'm sure, like I said, not one, one size fits all, but just kind of curious how you start to approach from the, the people aspect. The part that is almost one size fits all is you're not going to make it to 5 million if you are involved in service delivery. If, if the owner is involved in the service delivery, you're going to get stuck at a million, million two. You just can't be everywhere all at once, right? And, and that's a really hard moment where someone who's like, but I'm a designer. That's my identity. That's who I wanted to become. I'm like, great, you can stay a designer at a million dollars. Right. But if you want to be at two or $5 million, you have to be a leader. You have to be a CEO. You need to give up that design work or that video work or whatever it is that you guys are doing to make money. You need to get out of that. And so the, the first few hires, and this is really scary, are like a creative director or someone who's going to do that work and who's going to lead the part of the company who's delivering services to clients. Hiring that person is like a huge break for that business owner. Like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to make my money over here. And so that's the first thing that I, I try to get people to do. And then on the business development side, instead of hiring a salesperson, let's, let's create a sales process. And the best way to, to give you some mind space to do that is let's hire a, a sales assistant for you. Some of that qualification, some of that initial phone call, who can write the proposals, who can do the follow-up, and you just do the, okay, I've got an ideal client, I'm going to get them to the point where they're ready for a, a proposal, and then I'm going to close them. And so that narrows the range of the business development that you as the business owner have to do to the thing that you're really good at, right? And you get a lot of mechanical stuff off of your plate. Yeah, no, I think that that's so true because one of the, a lot of the conversation I have with these founders is, you know, they're selling their product or solution early on just off of passion, right? And their enthusiasm for the problem that they're solving. And you can do that as long as you're the, the, the creator or the owner of this thing. But then to your point, when you start to have to trust others or teach others how to do it, it it's a different animal, right? That's because right. you can't sell off of that piece of it. So how do you approach and work with your clients on that area? Selling services is there's a little bit of a game to it. People buy services when they believe that they want what you have more than you want their business. The more you want their business, the more desperation comes out, the less confident they are in you as a solution, right? Yeah. That passion sale that we really want this business, we can really do a great job. What that sets you up for, the people that buy that are people that feel like, they can kind of use that to control you. You often end up with clients there that are like super controlling or they're micromanaging because they know you want the business, right? And so it leaves them in the power position in the relationship. If you're going to get away from being the person doing the work, you need to get into situations where you have the power position in the relationship. And so that means that you recognize what I have is valuable. There are a lot of people who can buy it. 
when I see a prospect coming toward me, I have to look at that person and say, I could help this person. I have to decide whether they're willing to be helped. Are they willing to do the things that they need to do in order to get the results? And if they're willing to do that, then I can help them. And that keeps you in that, that upper power position, which if you're a professional, you know, if you, th- if you go to the doctor, you don't tell the doctor how to do his job. The doctor tells you, right? Right. It's the same type of relationship we need to build with our clients in a B2B service business. Yeah, it's such good advice. And it's funny, I just had a conversation this morning with a prospect and we were talking about business development. I said, it's been amazing how... And I, I shouldn't say I don't care about the the business, but I took an approach. Look, if it's not a good fit, you know, in the old days or early days, I'm like, man, yeah, I know I can do this. Let me work with you. We can do it. Now I'm like, look, if it's not a fit and you're not comfortable, it's okay, right? We'll yeah. agree, disagree, fine, and we'll move on. But that creates a, almost a different conversation. They're like, oh, well, now maybe I do want to work with you that if you're not 100%. So, I mean, no, but it does. I mean, it, it, it reverses things in a really weird way. And, and, and that's why finding that service market fit so that you can start generating more leads than you need. As soon as you have more leads than you need, then this attitude of I'm going to pick the client as opposed to the client's going to pick me, that changes everything. It right? really does. And so yeah. having that service market fit where you know this is what that ideal client is. And this is the message that is going to draw them to me. That's the critical part to scaling that firm. Yeah, no, I think that that's so true. And man, if we could ever figure out how to bottle that up for sales organizations in general, right? Because yeah. they're getting paid for those demos and the deals that close. So they do care about, yeah, that's can't exactly say right. I don't, yeah, right. So, but I do think we're heading into an era where that's going to be more critical than ever. And you're starting to see the transition. I mean, I was seeing it in the B2B world heading into it, but the pandemic kind of slammed the door on, you right, cold calling and selling you and all that kind of stuff. And I know it took a long time to get back there, but I'm really curious too, on your perspective on post-pandemic and what digital and remote and distributed workforce has, how that's kind of changed with some of your clients and where, where you think that's going. During the pandemic, it was certainly harder to do outreach because you couldn't find people, right? Like direct mail was going to their office and it took a long time for them to get to wherever they were. Email is email. Like it works sometimes, but in the, during the pandemic, people didn't have time for a bunch of spam email. That's where really knowing your audience and being really crisp with your messaging can make a difference because I still believe in outreach and whether it's... LinkedIn or whether it's email, like that direct outreach can make a difference, but it's got to be, it's not a generic message. You're not sending one message to a hundred people. You're sending one message to one person and it's got to mean something to them when it lands. And so that's that same thing where we're reversing the the flow. Instead of sending out a hundred messages or a thousand messages or 10,000 messages, hoping someone's going to reply it's sending the message that you know that someone is going to respond to. And I don't know if it's a silver bullet, but something that, that has been working well for my clients is doing video messaging, whether it's Dub or, or one of those platforms where if you're, you know, it takes longer, you're, you're putting more investment in, but that's what kind of makes it work, right? Is that if you can show people that I've spent the time to do the research to say, no, you're the kind of client that we make a big difference for. And doing that in a way where, where you come across as genuine and offering help as opposed to, to looking to take for yourself, that can be pretty effective. 
No, I think you're right. I had uh, Ethan Butte on the podcast not too long ago, and he's like a brand ambassador. I forget his title now at at Bomb Bomb, and exactly. And he talked and got into amazingly how few people are still using video and how much a better connector that it is, right? You're putting a face with the name. It's just not some spammed email. It takes time. And just to close out on your thought too, on the outreach, I 100% agree that how important it is, but I think you got to set expectations where it's not a close, right? You're not no. outreaching and you're going to sell something. It's not a transaction. It's it's starting the relationship and you have to be and understand there's going to be a time. You may connect somebody at the right place, right time, right? And they're ready to go. But I think the stat I read, and I tend to believe it just based on what I've seen is, you know, at any given point in your ideal market or ideal customer, only 3% are in buy now mode, right? So if you're looking for that needle in the haystack to close today, it's going to be tough. But if you're building a slightly longer game, which I think was where you were going to say, hey, you got to start building the pipeline now, create that awareness, create the relationship. And then when they're ready, their first call will be to you, right? I mean, if you look at the the different ways that we attract leads, the the gold standards referral, right? Referral leads, we all love referral leads. They're free. They close at a high rate. The problem with referral leads is you're not always getting the clients that you're looking for right? It's, it's a fairly inefficient ideal client channel. So then there's the content marketing and SEO and uh, PPC. And now we're starting to target a little bit better because our messaging is more targeted. But anybody that's done any lead qualification on those lead types knows you're still throwing out 50% or more of those leads as completely unqualified. Like on, right. on the face of it, you know that they're unqualified. So outreach is that thing that lets you reach out to just those people that you most want to work for, the people that are going to move your business forward, they're going to have the budget you're looking for, they're going to give you the portfolio piece that's going to get you the next piece of business. And so in that mix of things, outreach has that place of, I'm going to go after my dream clients, I'm going to go find them, and I'm going to track them down. And if it takes me a year or two to close them, I'm going to be on that. That's, I'm okay with that because yeah. these are the people that are going to move my business forward the most. Which is kind of taking account-based marketing to the, the small business, right? Exactly. I'm a huge yeah. fan of that. I think it makes sense. I, I don't think we can be 100% there, but it needs to be in the mix. Yeah, supplement your organic and your SEO that's going to drive hopefully folks that wouldn't have been aware and you can filter through them. But yeah, it's because again, my last corporate role I've referred to, you know, it was in the paid, right? We we sold paid search and Facebook ads, which, you know, had time and place. You could drive transactional deals because it was new and people like, oh, I need this. But man, with the ability to research online. And I like to say the buyers have all the power now. So you they, you just have to be top of mind when they're ready. Now, with that being said, there is still, you know, I get into LinkedIn fights sometimes with, with sales coaches and sales folks, but <laughs> there is still a, a role for really good salespeople, right? Absolutely. Yeah. They can close. Especially in B2B services, because it's never like buying a piece of SaaS software where you're checking off the boxes, right? You, there's always some customization of that service to meet the client's needs. That's the role of the salesperson. The salesperson is to get that last mile, right? Yeah. I'm interested. I think it's a good solution. Great. Now the salesperson helps to find that fit that's going to bring that person forward. And in most B2B service businesses, 
there's some pricing flexibility there too, right? Like in, for the right client, we can move things up. If, if for some reason we, we particularly want to work for a client, we might be willing to move some things down. But the, that salesperson really is that last mile. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such a good point. And yeah, that's kind of what I get into. I'm like, look, there's salespeople and there's good salespeople will adapt and be able to hit their quota and their mark. But I said, I'm not building a, my growth strategy or betting my entire growth trajectory on sales. Right. right. That's you right. You got to be able to connect and you, and you still have to be able to ask for the deal, right? Which is still uncomfortable for a lot of folks that at the end of the day, even though it's a, you're providing a value and a service to help them solve a problem and there's a price tag to do that, it's not everybody's cut out to, to, to ask that type of deal. So time and place and roles. The business owner who's looking for the salesperson with the magic Rolodex, that was like 1975. Like there is no magic Rolodex anymore. So and if and if he has that magic Rolodex, imagine what he's going to charge you for access to it, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're McKinsey, yeah, you're looking for that magic Rolodex and that person's going to make a half a million dollars. But in the businesses that I work with, that's just not a possibility. Right. It's hard to scale with that, that type yeah. of thing. So. And then what do you do when that guy leaves? Because he's going to go sell that Rolodex to somebody else. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's repeatable and scalable. Is is that's right? Look at it, right? Any what other challenges, right? So, is there anything else that warning signs that hey, I'm in this business, right? We talked kind of about the getting out of the delivery, the sales. How do you transition? Anything from fit culture? I've grown and pivoted 180 to the value of having the right fit of culture. I used to believe yeah. that you know execution a good product you can scale. Still 100% have to do that, but there's more pieces to it, right? That's absolutely true. And it matters more as you grow. So once you get into the million five to five million, at that point, you've created a repeatable process and you, you know who you're selling to so that you can reliably produce sales. That's what I call scale. That's, that's when you can say, okay, I just need to pour gasoline on this fire and it's going to grow. Right. And That's the point where hiring becomes critical because if if you can successfully generate leads and convert those leads into clients, you're going to need more people to service that. And if you start bringing in some bozos, you know, some people that don't understand how you do things and the way you do things and what your values are, then that starts to knock the whole machine off kilter. And so that's just like we're starting to look for the exact fit clients that's where we need to start looking for the exact fit team also. And because you're growing quickly, if you start to get behind on the hiring curve, then you start to get desperate. And just like when you're desperate selling, that doesn't work. When you're desperate hiring, that doesn't work, right? And so building a bench of people before you need them is really critical. So being active in your industry associations, knowing who's working for your competitors, who's happy and who isn't happy, so you can start to bring folks in kind of on an on-demand basis. That is really critical to that next stage of growth. Yeah, and the, and the other thing I've seen when you're at that $750 million, even a little bit less, and you make the wrong hire at a more oh. senior level, that's tough to recover yeah. from just because you get takes you three to six months to figure out it was the wrong fit, then you've got to replace it. Not only the time cost, but the money cost and the salary yeah. cost. And I don't want to scare people and say, hey, paralysis, because you are going to have to bring people in. But I think to your point, make sure ahead of time 
you're not just out of doing this out of well, you probably are doing it out of necessity, but don't settle, I think is the the way to make sure it's it fits what you need. And man, it's amazing to me the number of businesses and owners that don't have a plan. Right. I'm not saying a three-year business plan, but kind of no. how do these pieces all connect together? And if yeah. you hire this one here, what does this do to our other downstream? And the other thing that I see there when you're making that first critical hire, a lot of business owners kind of take a shortcut. Oh, I know Bob. Bob's good at this. We'll just get Bob to do it, right? And when you hire someone that you already know, you don't have the same level of skepticism and vetting that you would if it was somebody who was coming to you cold. So sure, put Bob into the process, but run a full process, get a job posting out there, bring some candidates in. You want to have some comparisons to see, is Bob really all that I think they are, right? The more candidates you can bring into your process, the more likely it is that your ideal candidate is in that process. So don't skimp on the number of candidates. Don't try to take the shortcut, look at two candidates and find the best one. Really do a good search and bring in as many candidates as you can. Yeah, that's such good advice. And, you know, just to kind of follow on to that, we, we kind of talk about specialization versus generalist, right? Your first few hires is usually somebody that can do lots of different things. That's and, right. Wow. Yeah. But at some point, you got to start thinking about very, once you get the process, right? Who do I insert in these areas of the process? So is that million dollar mark when you're starting to look at specialization? Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, like I said, probably that first hire is someone to do whatever it is you do for clients. So that's a pretty specialized role. But hopefully before that time, you've already gotten at least some part-time help in accounting and taking on marketing is probably something that you're, you're starting to outsource. You're, you're starting to peel away those generalist responsibilities into people who are more accountable, right? Yeah. That, that's one of the big shifts that that startup business, you value flexibility, right? Because you don't have enough people for all the roles. So you're looking for people that can play multiple positions. But as you grow, you need to shift toward accountability. Because the more flexibility there is, the less you can hold people accountable. But as you grow, you need to start having that accountability play a role. Yeah, that makes such a good point. And it's hard, right? Because the, the folks that help get you there may not be the ones that'll be able to continue on. And, you know, just even as you're the owner becoming, you know, I think majority of the, the owners can make the transition from the one to 10 for the most part. Mm-hmm. But then you really, really, really need to decide that if you're the, the person to go from 10 and beyond, if you want to go beyond, right? Because that's just a whole nother level of complexity and HR yeah. issues. And yeah. you're really, really not into what you were doing when you were building this business. Yeah. And, and like you say, the business owner also values flexibility, right? They, they remember the time that somebody stayed up late or came in and, and packed the boxes or whatever it was that was like the extra effort. And so we're reluctant to let go of those people, even though there's not really a place for them to live in the accountable organization. And so it, it's better to honor what they did and kind of release them to do that for someone else rather than trying to put square pegs into round holes for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of becoming a uh, manager versus the founder of the company. So, well, Brad, I want to be super respectful of your time. This has been helpful. Is there anything we didn't touch on that's kind of top of mind with you right now before I get to my last question? I mean, I think that the other thing that that plays a role, and we touched on a little bit, is raising prices. And I think sometimes people think when I'm saying raise prices, they're thinking about like a 5 or 10% increase. 
But actually, when you get into that million dollar range, you're offering a much different service than you did when you were two and three people. And so I'm often talking about a 50, 75, 100% increase in prices. Because you, you need that, that higher margin in order to hire the people that are going to do the work because you're not doing the work anymore, right? right? And this terrifies people, you know, to go ask for twice as much money. But if you just do it one lead at a time, you can be really surprised. The first person that says yes to that twice as much money proposal, now you start looking at your other clients like... <laughs> you guys are ripping me off. I can't believe I was doing this for them, right? Exactly. And so, so making some bigger offers out there that start get you to think about bigger dollars, that's really significant in, in turning the corner too. Yeah, I think that is really underappreciated. I probably don't think about that as much as I should as well. And it, again, it's the value of the product, right? Do your, the, the folks you're selling to value what you're doing and you're that's right. right. Exactly. So I think that's that's a really good last piece of advice. And we may have to have you on here for part two because I've still got right, We can do that. But I think this, is a, this was a great starting point. But I do have to ask you the one question I asked sure. everybody that's on the podcast is, what is one thing that you would highly recommend? And it could be professional or personal or whatever's top of mind these days. So my answer probably spans the professional and the personal. The clients that I'm working with, when I start asking them about vacation, they haven't taken one right? They, or, or they take a day here or there, or like, like I, can, I can take off anytime I want, but they don't. Right. right. Put on your calendar at the beginning of the year, time off for the whole year. Book it in and don't cheat on it. One thing that I do is that I actually book a day a month that's just for me. I don't, I'm not going on vacation with my family. I'm just taking a day to do whatever I want. I turn off my phone. I turn off my computer. I go out in the woods or I go for a bike ride or whatever it is that I want to do. That's what I do on that day. Because I need to get away from everything. And being away from everything helps, helps to release the grip. You know, that, that feeling that like I'm essential, that is something that's going to keep you from growing. And, and the way that you break that is by not being essential. Yeah. <laughs> by taking some time away. I think that's really good advice and I've gotten better at doing that, but you're right. It makes you one take a step away, helps you appreciate more and gives you time to think. And you're right. The amount of, of non-vacation or they go on vacation, do nothing but work anyway. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so right. find that balance. And I love the idea of scheduling it in ahead of time, right? Then yeah. everybody knows you are going to be gone and, and make sure the team, no matter how big or how small knows that you will be out of the office and, the one founder I work with, you know, she started her own business a number of years ago and her, one of her goals and objectives was, look, I don't want to work the month of August. Yeah. Right. End of story. This is why I'm doing it. I'm getting out of the corporate rat race and just, I want to be able to go do my thing. I want to go be able to hike and just take that month of August and kudos to her. She does it right. And That's it's amazing. About communication expectation. Her customers know it. The folks that work for her know it and the world didn't stop. <laughs> so... And, and that's, that's freeing for you and freeing for them, right? It, it gives, gives your team a chance to shine and it gives you a time where you're like, yeah, I'm not essential. I don't have to be this person. Right. And if you are, then that's another good reminder that you need to start taking some steps back or you know, diversifying a little bit or you're not going to get to where you, it's not sustainable, right? That's if right. you can't step away, it's, it's only a matter of time before it, it doesn't work. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I was really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I think you been great. Thanks for having me. Ton of value. Like I said, we'll do, we'll come back and do a part two and maybe do some uh, 2.0 type of. Okay, let's do it. So cool. And if more folks want to reach out, which I'm sure they're going to want to and learn more about you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Anchoradvisors.com is probably the best way to reach out to me. We've got a uh, business growth assessment there that helps you to evaluate sort of where you are in that, that trajectory of going from startup into a stabilized growth company. And the results will give you kind of the next things you need to focus on just from where you are to get just a little bit closer to the direction you want to go. And so that's probably the best uh, way for people to, to engage in this content a little further. Awesome. And I highly encourage people to do that, right? Even if you're not an agency owner or services owner, what you teach and what you work is it, you focused on one area, like you talked about at the beginning, pick the niche in your industry, but your fundamentals and your systems work across all. So I highly encourage folks to, to come check you out. Thanks, Brett. All right, Brett, appreciate it. And you have a great rest of your day and we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. We'll do. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. See ya. 